0: Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the globe adopt technology. My name is Tjasza Zaitz and today we're going to address a global problem of antimicrobial resistance. It's absolutely scary to get an infection and run out of options to treat it. Broadly speaking, Existing antibiotics are and are going to keep losing their effectiveness if antibiotics and antimicrobials are not used effectively. In this episode, you will hear a discussion with Mr. Oliver Schacht, a corporate finance professional and expert in the molecular diagnostics industry. He's the CEO of Ofgen, which developed cloud based software to identify, track, and predict antibiotic resistant infections. We talked about the factors impacting the global issue of antimicrobial resistance. We looked at the role of rapid diagnostics in the process of effective prescribing of antibiotics and also the political and economic factors impacting the development of antibiotics. Enjoy the show, and if you like what you hear, subscribe to be notified about new episodes automatically. Now, to Oliver. Oliver, we're going to talk about a very important topic today, and that's antimicrobial resistance. And as an introductory question, can you tell me why is the use of antibiotics still very ineffective today? You know, AMR is a very known problem. Doctors are aware of it. So where did the problems begin?
1: The the problems really begin... um... 130 years ago, we've, we're we still diagnosing um, pathogens, bacteria, the same way we've been essentially doing it for over 130 years. And that's by microbiology culture. And that takes several days. And so doctors today know that they will not have an answer as to the specific bug that may make a patient sick in their hospital. And what do they do in the absence of you know, the diagnostic information they treat empirically with their best judgment, their best, um, you know, known uh, course of action. And that's usually using broad spectrum antibiotics. And that compounds the problem because what's, what's antibiotic resistance. It's really bacteria trying to survive uh, under the stress of antibiotic treatment. And so sometimes the bacteria can then become resistant due to the, uh, the uh, overly broad use of uh, broad spectrum antibiotics for several days in far too many patients, where it's not not necessarily needed.
0: Can we try to explain that in a more biological sense? You know, so you mentioned that, for example, if a person is taking too many antibiotics, that they eventually may become ineffective. So, does that mean that if different people are exposed to the same bacteria, um, the same antibiotic is going to be differently effective in the two persons?
1: Well, it's, it's really that you, you may have a million bacteria, all of the same kind, and at the beginning, they're all susceptible to antibiotics. So you can use antibiotics, and it would kill the bacteria. And then, you know, as with any evolution, one of these bacteria has a genetic mutation that makes it resistant against this specific antibiotic. Now, what happens, all of the um, bacteria that are still susceptible get killed, but bacteria that has acquired a genetic mutation that makes it resistant now starts multiplying. And all of a sudden, you know, since these things multiply sometimes in minutes, sometimes in hours, they duplicate, duplicate again, it's exponential growth. Very quickly the patient can end up in a situation where the antibiotic no longer works. And so it's really trying um, the bacteria, trying to survive under, you know, environmental influences, but also under um, different antibiotics. So yes, a person who has, receive multiple courses of antibiotics rather frequently uh, that may increase the likelihood that bacteria in their body may already have um, acquired certain resistance, which then in case of an infection may make it uh, impossible virtually to use any known antibiotics um, on that patient. And that's why a lot of these people die uh, with what's called sort of hospital superbugs. These are really bacteria that have become resistant, not just against one antibiotic, but against multiple sometimes even all known antibiotics.
0: Mm. I think when we report about novelties, new technologies for anything in general, you know, just this notion of AI and its capabilities and the ideas of what will be possible in the future, I think this potentially gives us some false sense that, you know... um, Problems, in essence, are soon not going to exist anyway because, hey, you know, we've got AI uh, in terms of uh, drug development. You would think that with the scientific and computing advancements in silico discoveries and testing, we'll soon discover new antibiotics rather easily. So I wonder, you know, in 2019, WHO identified 32 antibiotics in clinical development, um but only six were classified as innovative so can you maybe highlight a little bit what's the state of the development of antibiotics
1: yeah if you look at the last 20 30 years it's really been the pharmaceutical industry getting out of the development of antibiotics i mean you're absolutely right if the appropriate technologies were applied and uh, there was a a broad-based effort to screen for new antibiotics, we should be finding many more. It just doesn't make economic sense to develop new antibiotics. It takes just as long to develop an antibiotic. It costs just as much money and it's just as risky as developing, for example, a cancer drug or a rheumatoid arthritis drug or let's call it an Alzheimer's drug. Now, the reality is antibiotics from a commercial standpoint are lousy products they're very cheap you know usually a couple of hundred maybe a few thousand dollars for a course of antibiotics that you give to a patient over 10 days sometimes 3 weeks and then the patient is either dead or back home and healthy you compare this to a cancer drug where you give it for years and years and you know you talk about hundreds of thousands of dollars per patient it's just that much more lucrative to develop drugs in these other disease indications, which is why historically the pharmaceutical industry has gotten out of developing antibiotics. Uh, we've been talking about creating, you know, government incentives to develop new antibiotics, like a, a bonus, billion dollar bonus. But, you know, we've also seen companies successfully developing new, truly novel, innovative antibiotics, uh, like a Kogen in the United States. Fabulous drug, gets to market, the company goes bankrupt within a year of launching the product. Why? Well, because it's a new antibiotic, you really shouldn't be using it at all. It shouldn't be first line treatment. It should only be the last reserve. So it's a bit like, um, you know, you've got to question the wisdom of leaving the development of antibiotics entirely to private enterprise, because, um, you know, if if that was the case, um, you'd find the same thing without the appropriate incentives. We wouldn't have had, you know, three or even four approved coronavirus uh, vaccines by now. Right. I mean, um, nobody would have set out to develop one three years ago because it wouldn't have made any commercial sense Um, Mm -hmm. with appropriate government incentives. um, A lot of things have become possible, but that's really uh, part of the challenge. It's just not attractive to develop. antibiotics, And then that leaves us in a position where we have to maintain the existing antibiotics effective as effective drugs for as long as possible. And the only way to do that is to be smart about using them. That requires diagnostic information.
0: Are you seeing that because of COVID, the debates about how to accelerate and encourage the development of antibiotics is in any way changing? Because, in fact, unfortunately, we have to talk about it from the economic perspective, but that does put a price on uh, the human life? Because there are, I think your website quotes, 50,000 deaths yearly due to drug resistant infections.
1: Yes, I mean, you look, I mean, the one thing that the COVID-19 crisis has, has brought to the forefront is that infectious diseases can still very much become a pandemic and can affect us all globally, every country, every part of the world. Isn't a question of, you know, uh, being in in the third world, being, you know, living in slums. It's just about everywhere. And and in many ways, AMR or antimicrobial resistance is sort of the silent pandemic, much slower, not as acute as COVID-19, but, you know, 700,000 people globally dying of those types of um, bugs year after year after year. And there are studies out there projecting that it could become Uh, Over the next 20 to 30 years, as many as 10 million people a year, if we continue on this path, it also it's a bit like climate change. It's its happening slowly. Uh, The science and the data have been around for more than 20 years. The evidence is all there. It takes it takes the will to act. And you you cannot do this locally. You cannot do this nationally because the world is so interconnected. You really can only tackle COVID, but also you can only tackle antimicrobial resistance with a truly global approach, a multilateral approach, like climate change, like COVID, that's the way we need to address AMR with, uh, you know, governments around the globe, uh, companies around the globe, and societies around the globe, all understanding that unless we all act in a certain way, um, all of us will continue to have that problem.
0: Yeah, it it definitely is a multi-layered uh, process. So on the one hand, prescribers need to be mindful and aware how to best prescribe antibiotics so they're not overused um, or underused in that case. There's the politics, the economics, the development. And we are going to talk a little bit about just one segment that can potentially help, and that is rapid diagnostics. So, what's the role of rapid diagnostics, and what do we talk about when we talk about rapid diagnostics in AMR?
1: I mean, it's really taking what today, in the best of all cases, would be two to three days down to anywhere from you know one hour to maybe a few hours. It's so really reducing that data gap from not knowing what bugs you're facing, what resistance profile you're facing, down to within a few hours with a very simple-to-use test that literally takes only minutes of hands-on time, you can have a comprehensive picture of not only the pathogens, but also the antimicrobial resistance picture, and therefore give doctors the information they need to select the right type and the right combination potentially of antibiotics for a specific patient case. Um, you know, those tests ha- are, are now broadly available. Um, there's uh, a number of novel platforms and they're ready for uh, really prime time.
0: So what's the the problem that the adoption is just not there and it's getting there or?
1: Like with all products, you know, adoption is going to be driven by economics. Uh, it's always a question of, of reimbursement. Um, there is always the challenge that, uh, you know, a test, although it may only cost say anywhere between 100 and two hundred dollars uh, some of the more sophisticated um, next generation sequencing uh, type tools maybe it's several hundred dollars maybe even a thousand dollars but compare that to you know the tens of thousands of dollars that keeping a person um, for several extra days in an intensive care unit let alone the the, the number of deaths and um, added you know mortality and morbidity um, but you know unless there's clarity on reimbursement and who pays for that uh, it's always a conversation between the diagnostic um, developers and each individual hospital to sort of argue there's a clear medical benefit, but there is also the potential health economic benefit to the individual hospital by, you know, getting patients um, out of the door quicker, off of intensive care quicker, um, and, and preserving antibiotics um, as an effective weapon, sort of improving what, what one would call antibiotic stewardship.
0: Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about how your solution works? So Obgen developed cloud-based software to identify, track and predict antibiotic resistant infections. So, and that's based on genetic information. And let's, so let's elaborate a little bit further, you know, in the terms that a five-year-old would understand. How exactly does this work? What kind of data are you incorporating to make the predictions? And to be, you know, fast.
1: Absolutely. So first off, it has to be absolutely simple. Um, A a five-year-old, frankly, could probably actually run the test. If you give them um, the instructions and you show it to them, you know, it's putting a sample uh, into a a little tube and then it's like playing Lego. Um, Put it in a cartridge, put the cartridge into your instrument. You walk away, you wait for a couple of hours, you get the full result. And then the artificial intelligence, the bioinformatics, is. It's in a way like playing a child's game of memory. You know, if you have memory cards laid out on a table, what you're looking for is identical patterns and they can be in very different parts. Here in this case, a patient, um, you you, you run this test and then you, you look at it and you find out that, well, there's the same genetic difference in this picture that I've already seen over here in a different hospital, maybe, you know, a couple of miles away is this an outbreak? Is this something which potentially you may have you may then find out you've actually moved a patient from one hospital to another one? And they've actually brought this this super bug with them. So it's all about pattern recognition and the ability, of course, computer systems can do this super, super fast. So if you think of your table of memory cards and how we all struggle, flipping one card, closing it, flipping another card, hoping the patterns match, we can do this in you know basically um, seconds. Uh, On the informatics side. So if you can shrink down the data generation, you could generate the picture in just a couple of hours, and then you can interpret the picture in seconds, you basically have something that's actionable and you could flip all the cards on your memory table, um, you know, within minutes after that.
0: The huge debate in AI tools at the moment is what are the data sets that the algorithms are based on, you know, how uh, useful are there that they, them, how useful the data sets are because when you transfer an algorithm from one hospital to another, there's challenges mm-hmm. with the transmission because of where the data set was uh, trained on. So, you know, in your case, uh, what are the data points? How many studies did you do so far?
1: Well, this is the beauty of the uh, of the combined option bioinformatics data sets. Um, it's really been based on 30 years, more than 30 years, on five continents and hundreds and hundreds of hospitals. Now, where does this data come from? This really comes from two of the leading industry players: Merck Pharmaceuticals on the one hand, and Siemens on the other hand have spent decades collecting bacterial isolates around the globe, they have sequenced them, and then they've compared the sequence information to the antibiotic susceptibility or resistance. And we've brought those databases together. So we're really benefiting from 30 plus years of work that has been done around the globe in many, many, many different hospitals. So um, we today have a data set that's roughly 55,000 different bacterial isolates that have not only all been sequenced, but they've also been phenotypically profiled against over a hundred different antibiotics. So all of the common antibiotics. And this is the broadest and deepest combination of um, genetic information and phenotypic susceptibility or resistance information. But you're absolutely right. This cannot be done in a small scale, local or national type study. This has to be global data. And one of the ways of keeping it current and keeping it growing growing fast when we acquired it, um, you know, a couple of years back, there was 11,000 data points in there and 20 on 21 antibiotics. So today it's five times as many um, isolates and it's uh, five times as many antibiotics. We've opened this up to the world, uh, we have a partnership with Kyogen on the bioinformatics side, and they are making this uh, data set available to researchers around the globe for research use only. And that way researchers using the data, they can add data it keeps growing and getting bigger and always stays at the forefront of science and technology. It always stays relevant. And we can then develop specific and tailored algorithms for specific diagnostic questions at the back end. So we can still commercially productize it, but the database in many ways is out in the public domain and is driven by uh, you know all of the research power around the globe.
0: If I'm not mistaken, you're present currently with the solution in 11 countries in Europe, right?
1: Well, that's with our Univero platform. So that's the rapid diagnostic. Um, and that's actually the 11 countries. That's just the uh, distribution partnership with Menarini. We're actually active in many more countries in Europe as well with uh, other distributors also in uh, Eastern Europe, um, in the Middle East, etc. Uh, et cetera. But, um, you, you're right. I mean, this is again, this is all part of the data generation effort. Um, with a rapid test, you generate the result, you generate the raw data. And then with the, with the bioinformatics at the back end, You then read, sense into the data and you make sort of the interpretation, but it doesn't only have to be our tests. So we can use our own tests and that's our, you know, let's call it, um, you know, standard diagnostic products business where you place instruments and you sell consumables on the data side, we're agnostic to the platform. This can be our platform, but it's also open. We have hospitals around the world who are doing their own wet lab work to generate the data locally. And they just upload the data into the cloud, secure healthcare cloud um, hosted by Amazon Web Services. They have a dedicated unit for healthcare information, um, and then we just do the bioinformatics um, in the in the back in the back end.
0: What are your experiences with different countries, the policies, the way hospitals negotiate? You know, what are the are, are there any specifics that you can share?
1: Oh, Europe on paper is, of course, as big, if not even bigger than the United States, if you add it all together in terms of all of the countries in Europe and all of the people. Um, so theoretically, the market in Europe should be at least as big as the US market. The reality is Europe is, as we all know, is is beautiful, but it's very diverse and very fragmented. Each country, it's, it's language, it's uh, culture, it's healthcare systems of how they look at bringing in new technologies, It's how they think about reimbursement. Uh, And then it's, you know, you have to do it one country at a time. Whatever you do in Germany will not matter in France. Whatever you do in France will not matter in Belgium, uh, not in the Netherlands. UK is an island in and of itself. And so you really have to do individual studies with key opinion leaders in local settings in each of the countries. And then commercially, and that's why we teamed up with Menarini across these 11 countries in Europe, Because for a small company like us, it would be possible to have sales teams and customer service teams on the ground in each of these countries. Um, You need to be a much larger organization to do that. We have our own team here in the U.S., which is homogenous. It's one country, one language, one reimbursement system. Um, And, frankly, it pays much better prices for uh, most medical products uh, compared to most, if not all, European countries. Um, But that's that's why in Europe you really have to – go through the heterogeneity of of the different national
0: systems. And is it uh, that the private institutions buy the solution more than the public ones? Because I'm just trying to figure out, you know, how the funding looks like because of the public systems in Europe that can get quite complicated because you have to either go through tenders or there has to be a national funding. So something is actually supported. So maybe just a word or two from that uh, side.
1: Well, we have, I mean, so from the customer base, we have both, uh, you know, private hospital, uh, hospital chains, private individual hospitals, but also public uh, and academic hospitals. So, you know, typically you have early adopters with key opinion leaders very much in the public university um, research type setting because they like to play with new technology and bring new technology on. Um, but then you ultimately have to make the economic case Um and then again, you could be surprised. I mean, the United Kingdom, for example, with the NHS, very much a national state driven healthcare system has, in fact, been at the forefront of bringing these types of products um, into the system and, in fact, making the fight against antimicrobial resistance a real priority. So uh, it's you know, there, there is no this is not black or white. Um, I think there's a general willingness to. Um, The topic of fighting uh, against AMR has been on the agendas of both the G7 and the G20 in the last uh, four or five years. So there's no lack of awareness. Like with so many things, there's always a lack of action, I mean, for how many years did people talk about climate change? And it wasn't until really only a few years ago that all of a sudden you reach a tipping point at which all of a sudden, you know, you, you have one Tesla here, but then all of the big automotive companies uh, are coming together. Why? Well, because governments are putting the pressure on and it's abundantly clear that you have to make fundamental change. And so that's, you know, in a way we're expecting something similar to happen here with antimicrobial resistance. Because again, if we don't do it, it's not going to happen this year. It's not going to happen maybe next year or even in five years, but 20 to 30 years out, which for most of us, uh, we're still going to be hopefully very much alive. Um, and certainly our kids will be, um, you know, in their in their Uh, prime years. And if we continue on the path we're on now, we're, we're potentially heading for an absolute disaster. Mm -hmm.
0: The whole point or benefit of rapid diagnostics for AMR is to uh, manage medication prescribing, so antibiotics (laughs) prescribing, antimicrobials more efficiently. And we talked a lot about the work that you do with hospitals. And also, when we think about uh, infections with drug-resistant bugs, there's usually this association that this happens in the hospitals. However, in order to optimize antibiotics prescribing, I wonder to which extent are you thinking about also uh, disseminating the solution to the community setting because 50% or even more uh, of antibiotics are prescribed and taken in the community for milder infections potentially.
1: True true enough. I mean, at the end of the day, though, those cases where those infections in the community then become resistant because the regular run-of-the-mill antibiotics no longer work are usually the severe cases with patients then ending up in hospital. So of the hospital infections and all of these really critical cases, about 50% are hospital acquired infections. The other 50% are the severe cases from the community with patients Ultimately, ending up in hospital because they've, you know, been, been given multiple antibiotics and uh, none work anymore. I um, again, you've got to strike a balance. If if the testing, of course, in an ideal world, you know, if testing were to become as cheap and cheerful as the rapid antigen testing that we now have for COVID, where you know, in ten minutes or twelve minutes, you can get a result, and you can literally buy them in a German supermarket for five euros a test. Great. Okay. But the reality is, when you don't think about one single virus or one single antigen, you're looking at potentially hundreds of different pathogens and hundreds of resistance markers, the diagnostics will be more complicated. Um, so, you know, it's, it's maybe it's not impossible, but I would say it's, it's certainly a ways off. And the bigger problem by far is in hospitals, not because all of these infections originate in the hospital, but that's where usually all of the critical cases will end up at one point, and that's where they'll be treated. um, And that's where we we really got to change the mindset. And then with that, you know, of course, you can then roll it out to the community from an awareness standpoint to gradually start reducing antibiotics. Because what we see time and again, we've done dozens of studies and, you know, sometimes it's 30 to 40% of patients that should have been either treated with less antibiotics or at least with different antibiotics. In some studies that goes up to 85%. If you look at it, there was actually a paper out there uh, recently in the Lancet, which looked at um, the fact that depending on the country, between 70 and 80% of all corona patients in these hospitals were given broad spectrum antibiotics, but only between 7 and 14% of these patients actually had a bacterial co-infection. Well, what, what does that tell you? That you're effectively overtreating by a factor of anywhere between 6 and 10. Um, so, you know, out of an overabundance of caution, you're actually potentially creating more disaster and more resistant strains by just giving all these patients broad-spectrum antibiotics.
0: I guess that stems from the fact that, you know, when COVID hit the world, we didn't know what was coming. The, it wasn't clear, you know, what COVID actually is, how it works, how it should be treated. So antibiotics are, I think, also in the general perception, the thing that's supposed to work. So I don't know. Do you know when the study was done? Was that like a bigger problem in the beginning of the pandemic? And is no, 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 no. This is actually
1: still still very much. So this was actually this paper in the Lancet was actually a, a meta study across many, many different studies globally. Um, so this wasn't just in, you know, let's call it February, March, April last year. But that problem really persists. Now, again, I mean, in many regards, yes, you're, you're trying your absolute best. Um, it also has to do in some countries, at least with, with uh, potential liability, um, there really is no liability in the United States for overtreating. But if you undertreat and you kind of deny a patient something that could have potentially saved them, you're also opening yourselves up for liability. So, again, there's many different factors at play, plus the fact that antibiotics are cheap and you just use. Them. I remember, you know, again in the community, 45 years ago when I was a child, whenever you know my sister and I when we had a, a strep throat a throat infection you'd go to the the family physician, you'd always get antibiotics. This was as much a kind of shut the parent up than it was actually helping the child. Um, Fortunately, we've moved away from that. Um, This this really um, very overabundant use, but again, in in hospitals, even today um, there's a lot of COVID patients that are getting antibiotics because there's a scare of potentially getting a co-infection, which yes, we've shown in a study with the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden, that if you have a negative Univero test, PCR test, you can, you can be 99.8% sure that it's truly negative. Now, it still leaves two in a thousand, but you know, on the flip side, would you, would you rather want to treat hundreds and hundreds of patients with antibiotics who don't need them and really shouldn't be getting them? Um, that's sort of the you know, ultimately uh, uh, medical, but also um, economic and ethical question to be asked.
0: Mm-hmm. We outlined, you know, the broadness of the issue. So, on the one hand, the economic side, the political side, the prescribing side, the patient expectation side. Um, so, I'm sure that you are in many discussions around this topic and what would be the next step to kind of get to new antibiotics and maybe even the statement they would not be needed. Um, so, From that point, what are you kind of optimistic about or what kind of technologies are you also seeing that could improve the current state?
1: I think the good news here is that all of the technologies are there. PCR is a workhorse. It's been around for decades. It's been reduced to practice where these tests are literally can be used by anyone. Um, Next generation sequencing. If you think about 20 years ago, The human genome cost billions and took years to do. Today, you can run a bacterial genome, whole genome sequence, within less than 24 hours for a couple of hundred bucks. And that number keeps coming down. So uh, the the, the, the information technology, you know, again, 10, 20 years ago, the, the sheer amount of data would have been overwhelming. Today, we have computing power that really allows us to make sense of this. So I think the good news is all the ingredients are here. I think, A, we need to come up with real incentives to develop new antibiotics. But that also means that when a new antibiotic makes its way to the market, it should be tied to diagnostic testing so that those antibiotics get prescribed only, but then they do get prescribed for those patients where it's actually indicated. Um, and, and so really, the, the diagnostic and the information piece is at the center. It's at the center of effectively using drugs. It's at the center of avoiding overuse um, and it's at the um, you know the center of what you could call antibiotic stewardship, just making sure that we, we keep and preserve the, the drugs that we have. You can go to a pharmacy today. There are literally hundreds of antibiotics available. We just got to make sure that they still work in at least the vast majority of patients in 5, 10, 20 or 30 years time.
0: You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, leave a rating or a review by going to www.lovethepodcast.com slash faces of digital health, and you will be redirected to the platform appropriate for your device. Stay tuned.